The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. You don't get to hate it edition. It's Wednesday, June 19th, 2019. On today's show, the joyously slick and pulpy California noir Big Little Lies returns to HBO for season two. Uh, it's, it was already a star-studded cast. It's now joined by the starriest, studiest of them all by Meryl Streep. I uh, can't wait to discuss it. And then The Last Black Man in San Francisco was a darling at Sundance. It's now being released to theaters. It's a wise and mournful elegy to a relentlessly gentrifying city and to the place its black residents have found and lost within it. Finally, we're going to discuss for the first time Sims, the video game, which is in its fourth installment and has been for a while, but is now available for free on PC, which has uh, led some critics and fans to reflect on its impact. Joining me today is Marissa Martinelli, who is an editor at Slate. Marissa, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, Yeah, it's great to have you. And of course, Willa Paskin is um, Slate's TV critic. Willa, welcome back. Hi. Big Little Lies season one was a taut, funny California noir combined with a school drop-off comedy of manners. It focused on four women, principally all mothers with kids at the local public school and all with uh, pretty whopping secrets, as it turns out. Their um, nerve-stretch relationships with their spouses and one another were at the heart of the uh, season one. And, and, And really at the heart of it all was violence, marital violence, between Nicole Kidman's character Celeste and her husband Perry, played by Alexander Skarsgård. Uh, there was something I thought really unique. I finally finished watching season one. It's dreamy and voyeuristic. It's very sexy. Uh, it's very catchy, but it's also wise in my estimation about both marital and class politics. And it was a hit. Uh, it also came to a pretty decisive climax at the end of season one. So the question, as always with such shows, is how do you do season two? I should say before we dig in that that there's no way really to do justice to discussing season two without spoiling season one if you haven't watched season one you should watch season one and then you should come back and listen to this segment but let's dive in uh why don't we listen to a clip and then i uh, will i can't wait to ask you uh how you find the second season but celeste tells me that you continue to be so helpful with her and the boys and she should just get a proper housekeeper you're very short (laughs) excuse me i don't mean it in a negative way oh (laughs) maybe i do I find little people to be untrustworthy. (laughs) My apologies. It's just that I'm, I pride myself on being a very good judge of character, but you have always presented such a difficult read. You know, you seem like a nice person, loving, but also you strike me as a wanter. A a wanter. Mm. You know, there are people in, in life who, content themselves with what they have and then there are others who just just want I'm not a wanter oh you don't have to take it personally anyway I'm a wanter myself you know what I want I want Perry back I want to know what happened that night and I I'm very tempted to ask you but I doubt I would get the uh, the truth would I all right, I should say she's uh, speaking to Reese Witherspoon, who's sort of the trouble stir uh, <laughs> of the four women. Willa, two things are happening in that scene, right? One is that you're introducing this new character who throws uh, some light on the 
violence at the heart of the Perry character. She's Perry's mother and is a passive aggressive wounder, um, you know, par, par excellent. I mean, she's really just a, a wretched, needling um, sort of, uh, you know. Uh, I think uh, it's psychic. a little strong. I think it's a little strong. We could get it. I don't think she's that wretched. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. Oh, wow. Um, and but but okay. Well, maybe let's see if you agree with my second point before you demolish the first one. Um, but this, my second point is that simply she's she's also moving the plot along, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you sort of you you need a new pot stir to come in and ask what happened on that fateful night. You know, it came as as I said to a decisive climax in which, of course, Perry dies. Uh, and now the mystery of how that exactly happened, which could just go away, is now not going to go away because of the introduction of uh, Meryl Streep. Anyway, what do you make of season two? Well, it's, like, it's such an interesting question because the first three episodes, which are all that have been sent to critics, I think the first two have aired. Like, it, sort of like the <laughs> the lurking question is like, does this show need like a big plot like that is what it had sort of in the first season we sort of were getting to this denouement like this climax and and, it, and the whole thing was sort of framed around this horrible event had happened like there was the greek chorus of um the townspeople like the other residents of monterey and um we knew that something terrible had happened but we start this season and it's like we have a you know we're past the confines of the book that the first season was based on anything could happen and you're like oh this is working surprisingly well is just like a show in which it's there is not like some huge dramatic thing about to happen. At least it's working sort of well for me. Like I would watch these ladies do a lot of stuff. And um, I mean, there's it's not to say there's not a lot of soap opera shenanigans because there's are there's lots of relationship tension and I mean a lot of different kinds of marriages imploding and uh, a lot of fallout from the events of last year. But like, does it need to be? Do they need to be like getting caught or like being cornered for this their biggest lie? And I assume that that is where it's going. And Meryl Streep's character, um, Mary Louise, like does play a part in that. Although there's lots of points of tension around um, this question, but I kind of like don't care. Like I'm sure that's where the show is going, but I would watch them do anything. Oh wow, um, Marissa, what do you? Uh, what did you think of season one? And and wh- wh- you know how do you play season two in relation to that? So I should start up front by admitting that I started right in season two. I missed season one. I was aware of its significance as a major TV event in which all these big movie stars were doing TV. And as soon as I started season two, I realized I couldn't possibly start with season two. So I had to go back and watch the entire season in one fell swoop so that I could understand what the heck was going on. Um, Season one, I think I agree with Willa's assessment for the most part in that I don't know that there needs to be a big reveal. I knew watching season one who had died already just from, you know, reading up about the show. And I didn't feel that the mystery necessarily drove it as much as the back and forth between the actresses and the psychological explorations into what makes all of them tick. And I feel season two seems to be setting up the same way where, I mean, the Reese Witherspoon and Meryl Streep, every time they're in the scene together... It's electric, and that tension is really driving the show. But there's also a little bit of mystery. We're learning more about uh, Zoe Kravitz's character, Bonnie, and her background and how she's dealing with what she's done. Yeah. I think the thing about that show is it's so... I find it so pleasurable as like a bunch of really good actresses like kind of doing their own <laughs> act, mm-hmm. like different stylistic acting in one piece that is somehow cohesively working together kind of because of the direction and like the sort of you know, beautiful 
look of the whole thing. But like you have, firstly, you have Reese Witherspoon, who as a producer of the show has like finagled herself this like feuding relationship with Mary Louise, like because she's like, I need to need scenes with Meryl Streep. So like I won't be this daughter-in-law, but I will fight with her. That's like the most fun thing to do. You have those. And like Meryl Streep and Reese Witherspoon are actually very different kinds of actresses, it turns out. Like Meryl Streep is pretty naturalistic. Reese Witherspoon is very good at this like type A thing that she does, like and Madeline is a great example of that. But they're like, you can see that they like would not, they're like oil and water just as actresses and including in their personalities. Like Nicole Kidman's doing her luminous, like broken, wounded thing. And then Laura Dern is on like, <laughs> dial 15 like, like with yeah. the scene this la- you know she's she's um she's playing sort of she's always been this like kind of brittle overbearing like the most heart like the horrific mother of the group sort of like and that you're she's just like ruining her child even though she means so well and she has a scene where her husband um has sort of lost all their money and she like is talking to him in jail and she's like I will not not be rich <laughs> and like that's that's like the gift that's gonna live forever and like mm. Zoe Kravitz is doing some uh, you know they're just like it's a nice Shailene Woodley's character is like coming in from some hippy dippy planet where like everything yeah. is fine like it's just a very you're like well, these things are all these things are all very different tastes and they taste good together yeah I mean I th- I, I think I'm the only one here who sees a or is experiencing an important discrepancy in quality between season one and season two. So I oh, you loved, are. Yeah, I loved season one. Loved it. It's one of one of my favorite things to appear on TV in a long time. I kind of class it a little bit with Happy Valley, uh, uh, hmm. slightly in that it 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 both brought you into a social world whose manners and subtleties and nuances you immerse yourself in and care enormously about. At the same time, that's tied to an enormously suspenseful, thriller-esque plot. Um, I mean, in, in, and also just in terms of the quality of the writing and the thinking behind it. So I agree with you both that that the ensemble acting at the heart of the, at the heart of it, especially these four women, is extraordinary. And that often throughout season one, I found myself thinking I would watch these four people do anything. I mean, there are multiple scenes, sometimes with all four of them, sometimes with some other configuration of the four at a coffee shop and just their relationship informal relationship with the you know coffee boy the barista uh is fascinating i mean it it, it, you know but what i realized starting to watch season two is how two supremely intelligent and plot driven things uh made season one work for me the first is that as a parent of kids it occurred to me over and over again that at some point somebody is going to do the definitive comedy of manners about how parents get thrown together uh in school drop off and pick up like like this new thing you know this this thing that's very reminiscent of your own experience of being a student in high school suddenly recurs in in early midlife totally unexpectedly which is you are thrown together and forced to deal with a variety of people you wouldn't otherwise deal with and it's almost intensified because the politics social politics of your own kids life and their own life chances as they're being determined by uh the school that they're in totally intensify people's the adults the parents reactions to one another and social class plays out it, you know, it's it's the equivalent in 20th and 21st century America of the 18th and 19th century English manor house, right? It's like a place where the ways in which we all relate to each other as a social whole finally stage themselves. And 
And when I started watching season one, I was like, someone finally fucking nailed this, right? <laughs> someone fucking nailed this. And and what these these people are angry all the time, and they're angry all the time at one another. And uh, and I think that that captures the way parents often relate to each other, um, parents of kids at the same school. And then the second thing that that made it, I thought, just nerve tautening and utterly intense was um it was it was a story with marital violence at its heart and there there are degrees of sort of psychological violence in each one of the marriages and power dynamics which i think are subtly observed in season one but at the heart of the whole thing is the relationship between celeste and perry between skarsgård and nicole kidman um and and what was wise about it was not just that he was an abuser, it's that she was addicted to the abuse and they were the one couple having intense sex still. Theirs was in some ways the most sexually alive of all the marriages because of the way in which sex was involved with rage for both of them. And it was her character having to come to grips with that addiction, her addiction to his insecurity which fueled his possessiveness and his possessiveness possessiveness turned into violence uh, and then violence turned into sex. And it was her coming to understand what that cycle meant to her, how it was endangering her, her life and the lives of her children and breaking it. That was the other piece at the heart of it. I mean, it is, it is the big lie of season one uh, that, that that then links up, I think, quite artfully with the second big lie, which is that in an anonymous sexual encounter, Perry rapes the Shailene Woodley character and fathers this other kid. So to me, it was just it was this convergence of the ensemble acting, uh, the horrible wisdom about marital psychology and violence, the school drop off comedy of manners with the convergence like the kind of super genre driven convergence of these two super suspenseful plots uh in the climax and it's like i find all of it's missing in season two except the ensemble acting and so i feel like i'm watching a prime like this bizarre experience of watching what amounts to a prime time soap starring nicole kidman meryl streep and, and uh, reese witherspoon but I want it to prove me wrong so badly and I will watch it to the end because of the quality of the acting. <laughs> well, it's so funny because I'm like, uh, that sounds amazing. A primetime soap starring all of these excellent actresses. That is... Point taken. Point that's taken. what I want, you know? With their trail um, mix of acting styles. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Like, I, I mean, it, I, th- this question of like whether or not this show should have a second season. I mean, there. this is like nothing ends anymore on television, right? Nothing ends. Like, this was supposed to be a finite show. Like, I mean... Killing Eve or Fleabag are just like two of the recent examples of things that like you're like that first season was very good. Why are you making another one? Um, and they just are. And I think all three of those shows like are sort of remain extremely watchable. But like it's I mean, not with Fleabag with the other two, there may like be diminishing returns. I just I think this was so much better than I was expecting it to be like. I, I hear what you're saying about sort of like the tautness and certainly um the absence of Celeste and Perry's marriage as like a living thing is very pronounced. But I mean, she's still dealing with all of the, like she's still mm-hmm. in, totally entrapped in that relationship. It's just like, and, yeah. and it's like psychological messed upness. It's just that he's dead. So it's like the stakes are lower. But I just kind of can't believe, like I'm just very impressed that they, like they started from nothing again. And like they have, there just seems like there's these people all seem like more and more like people. Like it's, I'm still very interested in it. Like I, 
it exceeded my expectations. But maybe that's just like I had low expectations and you had high expectations. <laughs> that was could like, be. <laughs> well, it's hard, too, when you're working off a work of fiction that's already concluded. I mean, the first season was based on a book and other shows have run into this problem. Handmaid's Tale, Game yeah. of Thrones. Um, but the show that I keep coming back to is 13 Reasons Why. Yeah. In comparison to this, in that the central character of the first season sort of lingers on as a ghost and they're making every effort to continue the relationships of the first season, even though someone is missing. I think, Steve, I, I don't totally disagree with you. I thought the first season did wrap up so satisfyingly that it's hard to see where they're going with this season beyond very simply, will they get caught? But mm-hmm. it is so yeah. delicious to watch. Also, I just want to circle back to the stuff you were saying about the school world, because on the one hand, like like that's the show and it's like most satirical Um and like sometimes like horribly delicious, but like really over the top. I think that this idea that like, I, I, I mean, I uh, my children are not as old as your children, but I have it has occurred to me that there is this like weird recurrence of like you and ent- you are entering these spaces that you like. It's not just like you're going back to high school, like in the sense that you are literally inhabiting like the spaces of high school. It's a very trippy, weird thing. But there is like. And this idea that anger is like the motivating feeling that everyone is having is very uh, interesting to me. But I also think a lot of that stuff is like too easy. Like in, yeah, it's a, yeah. like it's gotten more like there's. It, it, I mean, the principle like these like the women are so particularly the Dern character are so horrible in school that I it does almost like it, it actually is like it's like the whole. It is a place where, like, the different vibes of the show sort of almost starts to, like, refract and, like, break up a little bit for me. Where I'm like, this part of the show is, like, very big. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I, what is happening in this world is very large compared to some yeah. of the sort of, like, the more new, like, quiet stuff that's happening so, in the other Totally lines. agree. It's a little OTT and overdrawn. I, I thought it worked really well in season one, and I'm a jury is still out for me in season two. But will I have to ask what... what grade is your kid in right we're now. literally starting kindergarten so i mean like it's just begun so i've just oh, but like just even wait. Oh, just, just wait <laughs> but like even going on by school- third grade <laughs> you're gonna be remade by the amount of resentment you feel towards the institution and the other parents i i, I look forward to it or something yeah. whatever it is <laughs> whatever i'm the like the freaking ancient mariner over here um Anyway, all right. Well, it's a big, uh, big little eyes season two. It's on HBO. Uh, check it out. We're very curious what you th- uh, think of the two seasons in relation to one another. So, uh, hit us up on social media. All right, moving on. All right, before we go any further, though, let's uh, let's discuss what business we have. Willow, why don't we kick it off with you? Sure. Um, the Culture Gap Fest is going to be doing a Sally Rooney book club. They're going to be discussing Sally Rooney's new book, Normal People, on their June 26th episode. So if you'd like to read along and hear the discussion, pick up the book and join them on June 26th. I was almost going to recommend this book as my recommendation for this week and i'm not but it's extremely delicious it will take you like i think you're still at liberty to endorse it (laughs) it will it will take you like a day to read it's like goes down like a i don't know really delicious drink (laughs) bad metaphor but it's very good um it's still summer strut time summer strut is our yearly collection of strutty summer songs solicited from listeners this year if you've got a summer strut song to add to the playlist email summerstrut at slate.com and send us the name of the song and a spotify link if it's available that's summerstrut at slate.com and we'll compile those songs onto a shareable playlist and then discuss them later in the summer on our special summer strut episode 
In Slate Plus today, we're talking about summer reading, what we are reading this summer or hope to be reading. Uh, to hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support us. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gap Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gap Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, let's go. The last black man in San Francisco is driven by a heartbreaking MacGuffin. Jimmy Fails' grandfather was said to be the first black man in San Francisco. And with his own hands after World War II, he built a beautiful Victorian-style house in the Fillmore District, which was once known as the Harlem of the West. Uh, thanks to a combination of all the social forces that have always separated black people in America from ownership, the house was eventually lost. The movie opens uh, with it being occupied by white owners who do not care for it. And so Fails goes by and fixes fixes it up without their permission. When they're evicted thanks to a, a state dispute, he begins to squat there, uh, returning it and by implication his own lineage to its uh, to their former glory. Uh, and for our clip, we're going to uh, play a bit from the trailer for the movie. I always come back to the old house. What if it's empty? What if we just peeked inside? parties you can put on one of your plays we can yell it is this house our house that's not your old house and that's not your neighborhood hey if you're going all right well i should say the movie's directed by joe talbot um and it stars uh a man named Jimmy Fails playing a man named Jimmy Fails. Uh, the two of them are friends, and it's based partially on Fails' own experience in San Francisco. Marissa, let me start with you. Um, uh, what'd you make of this movie? I thought it was gorgeous. It was beautifully shot. It was almost like a. It had a fairy tale quality to it that made you forget that it's actually set in 2019 at times. It has these close-ups that are loving and and head-on. Uh, that sort of break the, the that create this spell that you're not just looking in on these lives but this is a story untold i think it was on all things considered they called uh jimmy's fails character who's also called jimmy fails a deposed prince which i think is apt this is about someone reclaiming their family legacy and i i really loved it i flipped for it mm -hmm. uh, i feel the same way willa what uh, what do you think I would then I don't know that I flipped for it. I thought it was really I thought it was really interesting. It is very beautiful. It's very elegiac and moody and it um it's sort of um it's obviously like it's like a <laughs> it's about gentrification in San Francisco without um and being sort of explicitly about gentrification in San Francisco without actually being about all of the things you usually talk about when you're talking about gentrification in San Francisco. So like it's not about tech bros. It's not about Silicon Valley. I mean, those people aren't mentioned. That is like the background. That's uh, the sort of it's like the context. Um, and I mean, I think it's what I liked sort of the most about it is um, that it felt extremely deeply thought out about um, about sort of like the, the long tail of gentrification. I mean, there is a kind of plot twist in this movie that I um, don't want to spoil, but I think it's sort of like kind of fundamental to this, to sort of what it's about, this idea of like when change begins um, and 
and the way that change sort of oh like and gentrification in particular sort of there's often I mean there's almost always someone who is losing out and um and while the movie is very explicitly about how um black people have about like San Francisco's relationship to black people it's not only about that um like sort of the context of like the neighborhood the neighborhood that um the house that jimmy's grandfather built is in is in a neighborhood that was a japanese american neighborhood that sort of was like emptied out um during world war ii when all the japanese people and americans and were interned basically and their houses were then taken from them and like that's like the deep context of like where you know this what like so it's it's not as if um there's lots of crimes that happened (laughs) Mm -hmm. um and i thought i like thought i was astute about that i think it you know it's like a dream there's it's very beautiful. The house is like incredibly beautiful um, in a way that does, you know, make you long for that house. Like it's a very, un- yeah. you know, um, it's a storybook house and yeah. down to the trim that Jimmy paints. Right. It's very, um, it, it's like, it's about a lot of interesting ideas. It's about, um, and there's some sort of the performances are very lovely. I think that like, it doesn't, it sort of works as like a mood piece. I don't know that everything, if you hit, if you pushed on everything, it kind of like quite, it's like a very assured first film. It didn't feel like a fully like, this is the per. this is like, like this, these film, this film will get better, you know? God, it's so funny you say that. I mean, I, cause I agree with the specifics of everything you say and yet it all added up to something I kind of, prof- I have to say, profoundly moving to me. Like, I, because first of all, I, in a weird way, I don't think the movie's about gentrification in San Francisco. I think it's about w- what is it that black people do not inherit capital, but just piles and piles of dispossession, and what to make of that fact. And you have this bizarre anomaly, which is that this guy has this really deep emotional. And he thinks family attachment to this specific piece of real estate and, you know, white identity in the post-war decades, like this social contract with white America was built around home ownership and entire systems of building homes, financing homes, financing suburbs, um, and um, and uh, enabling through debt your average middle-class white person to own a house. And so there's this very specific social, cultural, economic inheritance that black people were almost completely excluded from. And here's this totally anomalous story of a grandfather who with his own hands builds this virtual replica of a 19th century, a beautiful replica of a 19th century, you know, gingerbread San Francisco Victorian style house. And it was once this family's house. And can this one youngish black man, young black man, reclaim that anomaly that inheritance and and what that means to him personally and what that means symbolically in the context of contemporary america and then in the context of a gentrifying san francisco is is dealt with so thoughtfully and then the second thing at the heart of the movie is this one friendship with you know so so jimmy fails is friends with this playwright who i mean listen i can only respond to this movie as as a as a middle-aged white american right so i I hope I am not misspeaking, but to me, it was profoundly moving that this guy is attempting to be a an artist and to think and feel like an artist in the context of of being surrounded by black machismo. And he's trying to incorporate 
the violence inherent in black in street black machismo into his own work and that's integrated into this plot about the house in ways that i thought were quite artful and quite moving and like like whether he can do that is to me is it much is as much perilously at stake as to whether jimmy fails can end up with this house and 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 i liked that it was both imagistic in this barry jenkins style so i think ingu pointed out quite perceptively in her review that there's it's it's bathed like it's it's got a mood piece quality and it's bathed in elegy the way moonlight was added to which i do think that there's a lot of like of the mutual typing and scapegoating of people in various racial that people in various racial categories do in spike lee's especially early movies that are meant to sharpen and point up the kinds of role-playing that we're all trapped in and to me somehow the mournfulness of the jenkins style and the kind of sharply delineated slightly overdrawn but quite purposeful style of spike lee came together and created something really thoughtful and really beautiful like i was i was i was really really taken by this movie i guess is where i come out um it's interesting will that it just didn't it didn't add up to something bigger than the sum of its parts for you. It sounds like. Yeah, I, I thought. I mean, I thought it was moving, but it didn't. And it, yeah, I mean, I, Chaos and Collins in his review for um, Vanity Fair sort of talked about the, sort of the two protagonists. They they live with um, the character's name is Montgomery, who's the best friend, the best friend playwright. They live in Montgomery's house, um, which is sort of on the outskirts of San Francisco with his grandfather Danny Glover, and it actually too, like when you see it in sort of exteriors is an old and small and beautiful house. It's sort of like anomalous in a neighborhood that has been, um, I mean, they're like, there's toxic waste in the water that they're finally starting to clean up after it's been there for, you know, scores of years because presumably all of San Francisco is being gentrified or, you know, they're imagining the white people they're going to move in. But there's kind of almost this Greek chorus of five um, other black guys who stand outside of the house and have a sort of adversarial relationship to um, Jimmy and Montgomery and, are kind of like a, a, a sort of like shading and shaming their sort of like lack of machismo. And and in in Cam's review, he sort of just talked about like, where are those people? F- like, what is that? Where are they from? Like, what is violence intercedes? Like, where is that from? Like, there is this dreaminess and, and sort of like, you know, it does feel very much like a Greek chorus. Like it's not, the movie's not trying to be sort of realistic in that way. But his point is to like, this is just, this is not like grounded in something actually made it made this sort of like this introduction of a bunch of these ideas about masculinity feel to him a little like a lot of ideas that weren't mm-hmm. based yeah. in something. And I understood that I took that point. Like I, one of the characters ends up coming to the house and they have this sort of like, they have a schwitz because like the <laughs> right. new, uh. the new owner. And like, that's a very funny scene. And then, and it's very interesting. And then this sort of, it takes a sort of more cliched turn with that character that I was like, that sort of sets up the, denouement of the film but I did also I I did find like there was like a lot of pieces uh, sort of beautifully executed but not you know I, I thought it was a very interesting like I I think it's a really interesting first movie basically as I guess I yeah uh, Marissa any tie breaking you want to do here <laughs> uh, I will just say that I thought the attention to detail was actually pretty extraordinary so a lot of the scenes in the neighborhood are interrupted or punctuated by these men in hazmat suits who are cleaning up for the gentrifiers coming. And we see at one point a fish with two eyes on one side. Presumably it has four eyes because of the toxic toxic waste. Um, 
But then when they're at Montgomery's house and they're watching a movie, we hear snippets of dialogue. We don't actually see the movie, though Montgomery's describing it to his grandpa who's blind. And the movie's actually DOA, which is a movie about a poisoning and a man who's being poisoned, but he's he's already dead, but he's investigating his own poisoning. And I just mm. thought yeah. that thematic, it, it didn't really hammer it home. It was just a yeah. very subtle yeah. thematic connection that I thought was lovely. I will also say that sort of the turn the twist like I did think like deepened the movie in an extremely important way <laughs> yeah um, and we shouldn't spoil it but I completely completely agree with that Will yeah we? so alright well the movie is The Last Black Man in San Francisco we're we're in agreement that you should go see it yes yeah yeah, yeah. for sure yeah. yeah and um and in disagreement about how much you'll love it so you can go see it and then tell us um alright let's uh, let's move on for our final segment, we're joined by Dantea Price, who's a copy editor for Slate and also writes occasionally about video gaming for uh, Slate.com. Thanks for having me. Um, Dante, I'm going to throw this to you so quickly because I have a daughter who's absolutely obsessed with Sims, plays it all the time. I look over her shoulder to see what has absorbed her in that screen uh, so in, in, inten- intensively. But um, I don't really understand the dynamics of it the world the appeal or the appeal of it the world building and the kind of non-competitive nature of it so if it's okay just explain to an old like me what (laughs) um what sims is about and 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 why you play it the sims is about playing god (laughs) that is is exactly what it's about It's got a long history of The Sims, simulations, games by Maxis, by The Sims Studios. They've always focused on being this omnipotent, omniscient being who can see everything that's going on. Um, There was a previous series uh, created by Will Wright in which you played a variety of simulations as an ant, as a god of a city, and you sort of determined whether your people lived or died by your hand. Uh, The Sims itself takes that and puts you in a neighborhood where you control everyday suburbia. And and that's actually the premise it's run on for close to 20 years now. What if you could make yourself? What if you could make your friends, your families, your enemies? You can build their houses, get them jobs, find love, murder them in a handful of creative ways. Uh, it's it's somewhat cathartic, somewhat psychotic. It's, <laughs> Should it's I be worried just, about my it's daughter? Life. It's, no, I I've been playing The Sims in its various forms for uh, eighteen years now, and I'm turning out just fine. <laughs> but it's it's really just it's a way to live life creatively. And in a way you can set aside. It does it doesn't have any, you know, effect on your real life and it allows you to do all kinds of silly things, make stories, make houses, make bad choices, and there's a save button and an undo button, and those are just mm-hmm. so helpful. Um I I play like Sim City as a I a teenager, I think, like or, or a middle schooler. Um, and that was the last time I had like had any interaction with the sims and like sim city was like in black and white and like it was you would just make like smoke stack like you'd have to put like a nuclear reactor in to like get energy i don't remember the details but i turned on sims and i was just like firstly 
Like I've not played video games in so long that I'm like literally not equipped to like pick out clothing. Like I was just like, <laughs> I need someone to tell me how to do everything. But then, then you get this character. It's so, like you create this avatar, you make it look however you want, you give it like a personality and a things that it desires. And then I was so I was first just like completely taken with like just kind of like how pedestrian it is. Like they're like, here's your character. She's on a street and like make a conversation with your neighbor. And I'm just like. Oh, I like don't. I would have to be like so much better at this to like make this interesting. And I, and um, and then we for the reading of this, we found, I read the story about how basically like one of the long recurring things of Sims is that you basically are just constantly trying to like kill your Sim in creative ways. And that was amazing to me. And the part of the reason it was amazing is because I think this the the game. My sense is that it actually like it's sort of encouraging you to think about creative things you could do with your Sims. And I think you know they do occasionally like as it's gotten better, they do like get old and they drop dead or like some accident happened. So like you would have the experience if your Sim dies dying maybe by accident or not like at your hand but this idea that people are like building swimming pools without ladders so their sim will just like drown in the swimming pool like a time-honored tradition for (laughs) sims players and there was some part of me that like (laughs) found that i had like an initial like just like whoa that's so creepy and scary and transgressive because like even just at the very like the one question i had been asked was like do you want to have like a friendly conversation with your neighbor or like a mean like a nasty conversation with their neighbor and I was like I would never choose nasty why would I choose? but of course like as I would continue to play I'm sure I would get bored with just having friendly conversations but this whole idea of like the playing God thing is very interesting and obviously playing in God involves killing things but like there even though it's like there couldn't be a safer or more acceptable location in which to like play with and kill your totally non-real things like something about that like kind of I found it like creepy. I've gone soft since I played Sims 2, uh, I think in high school or maybe early college. I used to like burn my Sims <laughs> and all kinds of gruesome things. And when Origin, which is EA's gaming platform, made Sims 4 free uh, recently, which sort of caused this resurgence in, of interest in Sims, at least for those of us who are more casual gamers, I downloaded it and I fell right back into the same old habits of you start playing and then several hours pass and you think, what have I accomplished? Uh, but the level of detail in Sims 4 is kind of extraordinary. What In Sims 2, you could design your character to your specifications and you could give them personality traits. But now, I mean, you can go in and adjust how flared their nostrils are. You can give them muscles and uh, control their weight and their body type. And in fact, if you don't make your sims exercise they will get fat in the game which is something i only realized when all of my sims were suddenly looking a little doughy and i was like hmm, i don't remember this but it, it is amazing the ways that it has become more and more realistic in some ways even with aspirations they now have goals they have they can want to get married or they can want to become an artist and they can work in all different fields they can be freelancers what a concept that you could have this whole virtual world where all your little people have freelance gigs. <laughs> it's really, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's like a more efficient way to kill them than taking the ladder out of the swimming pool. <laughs> totally. I also, well, in The Sims yeah. 4, you can't even use the ladder trick anymore. You have to build a fence or a wall around it because they learned you can climb out of the pool without a ladder. Yeah, they're getting smarter. They're getting smarter. I, yeah. <laughs> 
part of why I'm so glad we have Dante on is that Dante and I recently realized we have very different philosophies toward playing The Sims. So one interesting thing is that different players have found ways to modify the game. Uh, Dante, can you tell us about some of these mods? I know there's one where toddlers can be possessed, which does not interest me. No, thank you. By the devil? Or like oh. a demon. It's sort of like a nightmarish <laughs> horror modification. I, there's one also that broadens the sexual horizons of the game. So inevitably, I'm sure there is somewhere out there Sims porn in a dark corner of the internet for that reason. Oh, it's not It's it's not even a dark corner. It's like a mildly shaded corner of the internet. <laughs> uh, the, Sims, the Sims has a really rich community. Uh, and EA has largely been very helpful in allowing its players to modify the game. There are tiny things that just allow you to make your own clothing or uh, add some new and interesting feature to a house. There's a community, multiple communities that focus on making items that sort of uh, increase or decrease the level of realistic behavior in The Sims. And then there are a bunch of mods that actually change the way your sims act or react to things. Uh, The Sims has, The Sims 4 specifically, has an emotions engine that allows you to change the mood of your players, something we weren't really sure we wanted back in 2014 uh, in order to give up things that existed in previous installments, but has worked out really well. Uh, It comes with the same level of absurdity, your sims can get angry and they can they can literally combust if they're too angry or you can also just ease their their anger by a angry boxing or angry pooping or fighting people uh, but the emotions engine is a little finicky your sims change their moods at the drop of a hat so a lot of more recent mods kind of go into adjusting the quality of life so you have more emotionally stable characters. Um, there is Super one, wild. and this is, this is the mod that, <laughs> this is the mod that Marissa and I were talking about specifically. Uh, there is a set of emotion-based mods by a user named, I, I assume it is Roberkey, uh, that just kind of tweaks the emotions engine to make your sims more human in a way that's actually very desirable. They don't, they don't become ecstatic when they just come home for the day and they get an A plus on their report card. They become ecstatic at big life events, like when they get married or when they have children or when they get engaged. And it's, it, it sort of stabilizes and humanizes the Sims in a way that I feel like as a long-term player is much more desirable because the killing gets old. The, the, the day-to-day absurdity gets old, and you want to build something deeper and richer as you continue playing a game that you've definitely dumped thousands of hours into your life into and don't want to think about that very much. So, like, what is your, like, what do you do in Sims now? Me? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I personally, I, I build, I, I create a fresh save. Uh, I have a variety of Sims 4 expansion packs, so I adjust the neighborhoods to meet my needs. I put, you know, salons and spas and restaurants, and I take one family at a time, and I just sort of build them out. I flesh out the 
the days of their lives with new jobs. I try a mechanic that maybe I'm not as familiar with, uh, like owning a restaurant or being a freelancer or uh, becoming a pet, a pet person. Pet, the pets, the pets expansion, like completely eludes me. Unlike previous expansions, the animals are actually autonomous, so you just kind of have to guess at what they want and what they do. And there's a lot of consistent and constant learning when I play, because I I will binge for days or weeks at a time, and then I'll set it down for months or wait for the next expansion to come out. It's just, uh, it's a very, it's a very mood based game. See, where Dante and I differ in our Sims philosophies is that she has, you know, this mod that will modify the game so that your Sims emotions are kept in check. And I play God. I'm a benevolent God. I want my Sims to be happy all the time. I have their house. I've used a cheat so that they have more money than they'll ever need. Their house is lavishly decorated. It's so nicely decorated that they're happy just from being home. And I control their lives to try to max out their skills. What's frustrating and also entertaining about the game is that my Sims do not cooperate with this. Like, I want them to be expert cooks and well-read and have a lot of friends. But if you leave them alone and there's a computer in the house, they will inevitably go play a computer game, which I look at myself and I'm like, that's exactly what I'm doing right now. Does them playing a computer (laughs) game make them less happy, like, in the game? They have fun. They enjoy it. But I'm like, I have these very clearly set goals for you, and you are off playing The Sims inside the game, which is exactly what I'm doing in real life. Oh my god! And I love the fact that that they do default. Yeah, that you could unleash this infinite regress of Sims within (laughs) Sims within Sims within Sims. Um, But uh, as a first order proposition, it sounds exactly like parenting. I mean, maybe a little bit. <laughs> I think. I think like the. I think that the input to output is not as exact. It's like more. Wait, just... wait. In which one is it exact? <laughs> well, no. Like, like the children are more like the pets. Like you don't know what they want. Uh, I mean, yeah. even within the game, though, there are different life stages. You can have babies and toddlers yeah. and such. And I want all of my families to be happy in ways that I guess are not realistic because I am controlling everyone's movements. I'm interested. How much do you guys like? do it as like a home decor exercise a lot i spend a lot of time designing the houses to me i Almost i don't none really <laughs> to me it's I so cannot, i am just not for that <laughs> i love that i love the it's almost like an architecture simulator for me more than a yeah. lifestyle simulator like i will get bored just controlling my sims lives after a couple of hours but i love designing the houses once the neighborhood is full i'm i'm pretty much done and i can wait oh until the next God. sims is released i sort of love the idea that that for some people playing god means just you know hiring out <laughs> for an interior de- decorator like god doesn't bother with the draperies um and the in the mid-century modern uh, picking out the mid-century modern furniture pieces dante i suspect that kind of like playing sims we could do this forever and iterate out and iterate out into further worlds until you know we'd created some intricate borgesian totality but we typically limit our segments to about 10 minutes so (laughs) (laughs) can i thank you here and uh and ask you to please come back on the show to talk about video games or anything else apposite always it's always a pleasure yeah Awesome. Great to have you on. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Willa. What do you have? Okay. I'm going to endorse an article or really a trend that was recently in the New York Times last week. It was in the style section this weekend. Um, 
It's about a YouTube star who makes um, a living eating huge quantities of food for her audience. What a dream. It's called, it's based on, so it's called mukbang. It's a Korean word. She is an American. Um, and it's like this crazy, basically she was sort of doing YouTube stuff and she realized that she was getting like more and more viewers. She would like just eat these like, the pictures in the in the story are like her eating crab legs, but just like these feasts. And she makes, she has a million followers. Like it's this whole insane world where it's like a cross of people who are like into ASMR, like the sort of the sound of her eating. Also people who like want company while they're eating. People who like, I'm sure it's a sex thing for some people. <laughs> I'm sure it's like uh, probably like an eating disorder thing for other people. It's just like this whole amazing YouTube world. And I am just like, YouTube is unbelievable. I know, like, I know, I, I so have really relatively little to do with it, but just like the un- deep, weird communities of people that are interested in different things, like, it is never not fascinating. And this one was like a particularly fascinating one. It's called The Queen of Eating Shellfish Online, and it's a New York Times article. And it's about, um, her name is Bethany Gaskin, and she binge eats food on YouTube, but like, she's not like a, in like a kind of like, she only she now has so many YouTube followers that she only eats at all when she's being filmed. So she eats twice a day for YouTube. So it's not like I mean it's really it's just like a whole fall down the rabbit hole. I, I it's a it's a wild thing. That is wild. <laughs> I was not expecting that. It's quite a rabbit hole. Yeah. Uh, Marissa, what do you got? Mine is not nearly so. <laughs> Uh, eccentric. I'm going to endorse a show that is near and dear to my heart, and that is Shit's Creek. It is a oh, CBC yeah. show that airs on Pop in the U.S. The first four seasons are also on Netflix. Uh, I recently wrote about Shit's Creek for Slate. It's just a, a cult show that has amassed this devoted following recently. It's almost at its end. It just wrapped its fifth season. Its next season will be its last. But it's a, about a wealthy family who loses everything, very Arrested Development-like premise. Uh, and they take refuge in a small town called Schitt's Creek that they bought as a joke for the name. And a lot of the first season is them trying to interact with normal people and this podunk town with its crude name. But then in the second season, something extraordinary happens. The show finds a wonderful heart. It is so sweet. The performance by Catherine O'Hara in particular as the matriarch of the family, who is also this soap opera star with an implacable accent, is not to be missed. And I highly recommend it. Uh, It's so funny. My wife has started watching it. I think has binged the entirety of it. And what she keeps saying is, it's so funny and I never laugh. It's so perfect and I have no idea why. Like <laughs> it's just there's something so itself about it that you can't it, it, there there's no basis of comparison in a weird way and there's a but it's it's a experience of total rapture to watch it and she just has no analytic vocabulary for why. It is very hard to nail down and part of why I tell people to start in the second season and I made a case for that uh, in the piece for Slate is because if you start with the pilot, it's a much meaner show at the beginning. And I think you won't really understand what it is that je ne sais quoi, you know, quality until you get deep in the weeds. It mm. sounds like Parks and Recreation in that way, actually. A little bit in, in that it finds its heart later on. Yeah. As a kid who used to stay up till all hours to watch the very, very original SCTV back in the late 1970s, it is amazing to me that not only these people 
became all of them became famous um and um but that so many of them persisted and stay i mean eugene levy and um uh catherine o'hara are they were the original cast i think back in like this is like 1978 maybe on that show it's just amazing uh what they've done anyway um i am gonna probably i'm very curious to hear from my co-panelists whether what i'm endorsing is just so already discovered that this is like (laughs) value-free endorsement but um really thanks to the big little lies soundtrack i gotta say martha wainwright was kind of new to me i mean i know loudon wainwright i know rufus wainwright i really was not familiar with martha wainwright's music and there's a song of hers on the soundtrack i was like who what is that that's amazing and so i tracked down her first eponymous uh, lp from 2005 martha wainwright has been on in heavy rotation in my household is a she's an incredible songwriter and singer the daughter of um loudon wainwright the third legendary folk singer but also kate mcgarrigal equally legendary folk singer um probably best known for the mcgarrigal sisters who are some of my made some of my favorite music of all time but she's she is amazing. I really lo- love that record. Do you guys listen to her at all? I think this was a good <laughs> endorsement yeah. in that neither of us was like, oh, Martha, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, just to give you like a little bit of a taste and maybe we can go out on the song. The song that was playing on Big Little Lies that's on that first album is called Bloody Motherfucking Asshole. And it just has this like verve, rage-driven verve to it. At the same time, there's something like kind of like lilting and beautiful and McGarrigal-esque about it. Um, so, and uh, who could pull that off other than uh, Martha Wainwright? So check it out. I think that's a great record uh, and a great song. Like those guys with guitars I've been watching in bars Who've been stamping their feet To a different beat To a different All right, uh, Marissa, thank you so much uh, for coming in and joining us. That was really fun. Thanks, Steve. Willa, it is always a huge pleasure to have you on this show. Uh, yeah, uh, what Th- else can I say? <laughs> <laughs> thank you. See you soon, I hope. Yep. Uh, before we go, we just wanted to give a shout out to some new Slate Plus members who listed the Culture Gab Fest as their favorite show. Scott Middleton from Somerville, Massachusetts. Amy Kaufman from Sleepy Hollow, New York. Alex Tobin from Utrecht, Netherlands. Amanda Young from Melbourne, Australia. Eric J. from Los Angeles. Walter Azevedo from New York. Brett Robb from North Geelong. Matthew Price from Brooklyn. Ian Jacobs from San Francisco. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show. Uh, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today. That's at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We do have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. We like to be interacted with, um, by and large. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our uh, production assistant is Alex Barish. For Marissa Martinelli and Willa Paskin, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. This is a fun show. We'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.